Welcome back, Warriors. Quay Tunse Sego Anibuju. Quay Nin Deluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing systems. And it's also about asserting living and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. Today, we get to talk to Turtle Island's own political affairs correspondent. His job is much harder than other correspondents. He has to cover all of Turtle Island, Canada, the US, Mexico, and when necessary, all of the other colonial countries that continue injustices against Indigenous peoples. But we know he is up to the task. Not only is Negon Sinclair an assistant prof at the University of Manitoba in the Department of Native Studies and a prolific public speaker, he is also a well-known media commentator. He's an award-winning author and an award-winning columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. You have seen him on CBC, CTV, APTN, And most importantly, you know how big he is as a political affairs correspondent because he has been on the one and only Warrior Life podcast. And I mean, seriously, if that doesn't qualify you as Turtle Island's political affairs correspondent, I don't know what does. What do you have to say about that, Negon Sinclair? (laughs) Happy to be here again. (laughs) And uh, okay. what, a, what a gracious introduction. I've never been introduced quite like that. So, <laughs> me well. well, you've been on here before, so I'm going to have to shake it up every time you're on here. Um, and because you're so good at this, let's just jump right into it. So what about this U.S. election? Yeah, so this U.S. election, uh, I think uh, originally we were going to broadcast this a few weeks ago uh, because we, you know, were, but then we weren't certain of the outcome. And uh, for all intents and purposes, the election looked like it was going Trump's way. And in many ways, it was going the way of the Republicans in that the Republicans performed better than anyone expected, uh, winning major uh, uh, governor senatorial races, Uh, keeping for the most part the Senate. Uh, However, that's going to be in some Georgia runoff elections. But um, after the mail-in ballots were counted for the next about 72 hours, 96 hours after the uh, actual election day, which I think people aren't used to, uh, aren't they, you know, every election works in that way. Every election has mail-in ballots that you count after the, after the day, but most, most uh, states have been, uh, have been uncovered, have been determined by that point. The mail-in ballots are very minimal. Uh, In the case of this, we had the most mail-in ballots of all time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And in major states, swing states, uh, Trump lost where he had been leading previously. And in those swing states, particularly uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, uh, those particular states resulted in a real significant shift And interestingly enough, in those states in which Biden won through the mail-in ballots, uh, those are also the states with the highest percentage of eligible Native American voters. So uh, in the case of Arizona, uh, eligible Native voters are about 5%. And if you uh, see where the the biggest uh, wins for Biden into the tune of 90, 95% in some areas in Arizona, those were specifically indigenous areas, urban and rural, uh, particularly amongst the Navajo. So what we're seeing is it's very likely that Native American votes got rid of Trump, or you could think of it another way, brought in Biden. Uh, Now, the history of the Democratic Party with Native Americans is not particularly a positive one. In fact, probably the best presidents that Native Americans have had is like Richard Nixon or Republicans. Uh, However, uh, Trump has shown all signs of uh, an all-out assault on not everyone, but also Native Americans. So here we are in a situation where I think Native people had had enough. Uh, They were more invested in Biden than Trump. Not in every state, however. In Oklahoma, for example, overwhelmingly for Trump, a huge percentage of Indigenous voters in that state as well. But that's not really a swing state. Native people really don't have as much of an impact as I think they did in Arizona. 
Well, I think that's really interesting, especially because you raised Oklahoma, that as, as you know, you know, this was a historic election also in terms of Native Americans in politics, because there was actually six Native Americans elected to Congress. And the interesting thing about it is it was three men and three women, so divided right down the middle, and three Democrats and three Republicans, again, divided right down the middle. And two of the Republicans came from Oklahoma. And I think what's also significant is that right now, Deborah Holland, who is from the Pueblos of Laguna, who had been elected in the last election, she's now actually being vetted by the Biden administration to potentially serve in the role as, uh, I think it's Secretary of the Interior. So that could be another historical result from this past election. Although, uh, not to take away from any of, that, any of the momentum, I mean, we saw with Jody Wilson-Raybould that just because an Indigenous person is within the government doesn't mean that, A, the Indigenous person agrees with the uh, policies of the government, B, that they're able to somehow reconcile those views, and C, if there is a conflict, what inevitably tends to happen is Indigenous peoples are tossed out and then simply replaced by usually a white man. Or in the case of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, several different white people. <laughs> and so the real problem, of course, is that uh, when Native people are in politics, when are in government, will they be listened to? Uh, in the case of the U.S. Uh, government, I have absolutely no optimism whatsoever that Indigenous rights will be trampled upon, pipelines projects will be approved, and particularly after the pandemic, uh, we're looking at a major economic infrastructure uh, agenda by both Canada and the United States, which inevitably involves Indigenous territories. Uh, well, in fact, already involves Indigenous territories, as we see during the pandemic, all of the major resource projects that are violate Indigenous rights that don't involve consultation have been hammered through, delivered, uh, working at full capacity. Um, in Manitoba, for example, here, the Manitoba Hydro uh, kiosk generating station, um, as well as uh, other, you know, projects in the north, They've all continued unabated. In fact, they were the only operating uh, project during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they were flying in Americans. They were flying in people from international, from overseas. They're also flying in people from all across Canada, even though the borders were apparently closed. Well, and, and those and, are really and good can't points. My air quotes there, but I meant closed, meaning not really closed. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And, and I'm glad you raised that because if you look at Canada, so on two things, the pipelines, but also on, you know, Native people in politics in general, um, here in Canada, the, you know, it's all talk about reconciliation and inclusion and, you know, promoting this nation to nation relationship. And when Jody Wilson-Raybould was Minister of Justice, she opposed legislation that was Native people were supporting, and then she tried to impose legislation that Native people weren't supporting. So she wasn't acting as our friend then. And you can only imagine in the U.S., which has a far less, you know, Native agenda or ne less positive Native agenda than, than Canada, that they'll be anything different. I will say, however, that Sharice Davids and Deborah Holland, Sharice is from the Ho-Chunk, um, they have both worked and brought the issue of murder to missing Indigenous women, helped bring that to the forefront during their time. So there will be bits and pieces, I think. They helped pass legislation um, to get more accountability on murder to missing. So I think, you know, that there will be opportunities. All we can do is hope. And I'm glad you raised pipelines because prior to Obama leaving office, he um, didn't approve the Keystone XL pipeline. And so that was effectively what we thought was a done deal. And then during COVID, magically, you know, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney announces, oh, we're going to resurrect the Keystone XL pipeline, put all this money into it, without actually having any approvals in the US. And now that Trump's out, one of the big questions that Native Americans are asking are, are you going to still keep with having no Keystone XL pipeline? What are you going to do about Enbridge, you know, line three? What are you going to do about all of these other pipelines, whether he will follow 
in the footsteps of Obama, whether he will go ahead and approve all of these things. So there's actually a lot of activism happening right now, even before Biden takes office to kind of stop all of these pipelines. And I think that's, a, you know, that's really important because keep in mind, that's all happening while we're in the pandemic. Like you, you're the point that you raised around all of these projects they were some of the only ones that got these blanket exclusions to continue with man camps, to continue with transportation inside and outside of our countries. And COVID is still raging. So now the election's over. We know Biden's going to take office. We've got all of these pending questions, but COVID is still a huge issue, right? So the Navajos helped get rid of Trump, but the Navajos are still greatly afflicted by COVID. The, I mean, uh, you sort of sped past the idea that there's still lawsuits in place with Trump. And however, those are, of course, uh, uh, his Twitter activism, uh, which is the ultimate slacktivism, by the way, uh, is probably not going to work. And uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, while kicking and screaming in parking lots of uh, landscaping firms, uh, seems to be getting a lot of attention. It doesn't seem to be moving the courts as much. However, there are steps, uh, Michigan, for example, yesterday, counties in Mi- a county in Michigan with majority Biden voters uh, did challenge the results, the Republic, the two Republican uh, legislators there. Uh, so we, we are in still a struggle to get Biden to get into, a, uh, into the Oval Office. Never mind the fact that we have another 60 plus days, is it 90 days? I'm not sure. January 20th is when, um, is when Biden's supposed to take office. And uh, Trump is firing everybody left and right to ensure that he can do some serious damage, including pulling troops out of Afghanistan. You, you know, the the key here is there's a potential, two potential vaccines that are coming. And the uh, by all intents and purposes, you'll see healthcare providers get those by the end of the year. Uh, there was special permission provided this morning for one of those two vaccines. The other one is probably more effective, certainly better transportable from Moderna. So it's likely that that vaccine, both of them will be trotted out next year. If we get 90% protection rates, uh, Native people aren't short after healthcare workers. And governments, for the most part, are recognizing that Native peoples are, are most affected populations. In Canada here, I think uh, Native peoples are at the top of the list, uh, near the top of the list in terms of looking at the ways that we've been impacted by COVID-19. So potentially, if you are uh, uh, in an Indigenous community that's deeply affected, and there's many of us now, uh, you're probably going to see a vaccine sooner rather than later. I would say before uh, summer next year, probably in an Indigenous community, supposing that production is not interrupted, supposing that there's no problems discovering, you know, some long-term effect by one of those two vaccines. It's more likely Canadians are going to get Moderna than they're going to get Pfizer. Um, and because of the transportability of Moderna, they doesn't have to be at sort of ice cold temperatures. But the, the, the thing that you talked about there of talking about infrastructure projects and the use of uh, lands and resources during the pandemic, I'm deeply concerned about what's going to happen next. And the reason why is because we know the history of North American governments, Turtle Island, uh, on Turtle Island, has always been to spend their way out of a crisis. And what that means is, is that infrastructure is at the top of spending for any government. That a government's saying, okay, we're going to build infrastructure to spend our way out of the crisis, create jobs. And so, well, what that looks like is that looks like uh, uh, roads, that looks like um, uh, hospitals and buildings, but it most importantly looks like resource projects. And what that's going to end up looking like is projects that are defunct, that are dead, are going to be resurrected. And what I'm thinking is, as you talked about the Keystone XL pipeline, I'm talking about the projects that are somehow held up for whatever reason due to regulations or consultation, that's Coastal Gas Link, that's Trans Mountain. And then uh, projects that are long considered defunct will suddenly be resurrected, like the Silica Sand Project here in Manitoba, which affects Manicotogan uh, in, uh, just on the east side of Lake Winnipeg. And the problem will be is that consultation will be seen as more of a hindrance than it was pre-pandemic, because it will be seen as uh, somehow 
why aren't you with the program? Hey, Indigenous peoples, don't you want jobs? Hey, Indigenous peoples, why are you so dead set against, uh, you know, getting us to recover from the pandemic? So I think that we're in for more conflict coming out of the pandemic after a vaccine is found uh, and then distributed. I think we're looking at a major trampling on Indigenous rights into the future and something's got to be done about it. And as you said, activism is happening now, but I think I think that we're in for a bigger fight than ever coming out of this pandemic. You know, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of where the conflict's going to originate and the problem in how the Canadian public will actually see it. So it's kind of like, you know, in the Harper years, they were very strategic at that, you know, labeling a piece of legislation, First Nation Water Safety Act. And then so when chiefs and other people spoke out against it, so when chiefs and other people spoke out against it, they looked like, well, how could you be against safe water? That makes no sense. Knowing that most Canadians aren't going to read the legislation, they're not going to understand the analysis, and it's going to be the same thing here. People will have be have a very different mindset around the uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of jobs, the ability to provide for themselves, and, and p- potentially cling on to that conservative notion that the only jobs are those in resource extraction and really forget about the fact that there's far more profitable and sustainable jobs in sustainable energy and, you know, addressing climate change. And, you know, there's lots of different kinds of infrastructure projects. Imagine if they spent money building, you know, water treatment plants on reserves everywhere. I mean, it's things like that or housing for first nations, but all like what you're saying has been enabled by COVID. Governments have used COVID almost as a cover. And I know you and I have talked about this before um, because they actually changed laws. Different provinces and different states changed laws to allow this to happen. I mean, in the United States, you had Trump relaxing environmental laws saying, well, we don't want to cause an undue hardship on all of these corporations trying to do extraction during COVID as if just the nature of COVID causes undue hardship for them. And here in Canada, we've also had different provinces relaxing or making exceptions here in Ontario for certain. Uh, It's happened at the federal level. And so I think you're right on a go forward basis that this is only going to get worse, not better. And this is despite the fact that the United Nations Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination um, issued this year a a call on Canada to issue a moratorium on all of these projects for the safety of uh, First Nations people and that this is a massive violation of human rights. And so Canada's not on side with the international community, at least in the you know human rights treaty context, certainly not on side with what ha- how it plays out on the ground and where some of the COVID infections are coming from, literally from these projects, and what it means for the future. And we already have hotspots. I mean, there's lots of hotspots already going on in Canada and the United States. So the, the bottom line of it is, is that... Yeah, coming out of the pandemic or, you know, in the midst of the pandemic now, um, we just surpassed uh, a thousand cases on reserve as of yesterday on First Nations. And until this point, until very recently, um, COVID had only impacted a few communities here and there and to the tune of a few dozen cases in Alberta and in Ontario. But for the most part, uh, COVID had not hit, uh, just like the Spanish flu in 1919, did not hit First Nations communities until about six months after it had hit major cities. So what happened during the, the 1919 Spanish flu is everybody dealt with uh, the Spanish flu. There was a massive emergency situation in cities. Media covered it. And then, uh, and then it kind of died down and the second wave started. And then everybody focused their attention saying, okay, we got this, we can handle this, we can, you know, have um, sort of uh, controlled openings of the economy, just like in 1919. But then boom, First Nations uh, got hit six months down the line, and much more devastatingly so because of poverty, because of lack of of health infrastructure, and because of uh, the conditions of living on reserve uh, lead to a outbreak moving much quicker than it does in cities. 
And so it's playing out exactly like 1919. Uh, we're looking at First Nations communities impacted far more, particularly in communities right now in Manitoba um, with, uh, 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 with seniors facilities, particularly old age homes, uh, long-term care facilities. And in the PAW, for example, in Opaskwe Cree Nation, nearly 100% of the facility is hit by COVID, uh, is infected by COVID, and there is no assistance. There is no ability to provide any assistance. The hospital is overrun in the nearby community, never mind the fact that medevacing people to the city. So what you've got here is you've got a recipe for disaster for First Nations all across the country, and you're seeing it particularly happening right now in urban spaces, so yesterday we had the youngest person in Manitoba die from COVID. Her name was Jen Sinclair. She was from Fisher River First Nation, uh, which is right beside my community of Pegasus First Nation. Um, and she was 38. And uh, she had been also coincidentally, uh, or perhaps un not coincidentally, um, had been infected by H1N1, uh, you know, Half a half a decade ago or so, um, or was it a decade ago? I can't. I think it was a decade ago. Is H1N1, and uh, we know that H1N1 rampaged through indigenous communities as well. So she her health was already compromised, and that led to her, when being infected with COVID, as dying and being the youngest person in Manitoba to die from the sickness. Unfortunately, if we don't do something soon, if something isn't done proactively we're going to be looking at the impact of COVID-19 on Indigenous communities, urban and rural, for decades to come. And let me give you an example. During the first three months of the pandemic in British Columbia, uh, there was more overdoses, uh, even though the cases counts were very low. In Manitoba, for the first six months of the pandemic, uh, needle use went up 12% on the streets. Now I walk with a group called the Mama Bear Clan and we, uh, we're a street uh, level first line respond group, uh, community run, volunteer run. Uh, we walk out on Sundays. Uh, they do, we do more walks, usually two to three times a week. Uh, but the walk that I lead uh, or co-lead with other women um, is, uh, is on Sunday nights. And so the thing that we provide is we provide mental health services, uh, food, um, also a listening ear, and we also provide a smudge, so any uh, sort of spiritual services for our relatives on the streets. In Manitoba, 90% of the street people, Indigenous. So <clears throat> uh, what we saw was a massive upswing in mental health problems, mental health challenges. Trauma that had already been existing was now exponentially increased because people felt unsafe, uh, there was more violence on the streets because people were more agitated. And then on top of that, all the major centers that were supporting Indigenous peoples closed their doors, like the library, like city services, like even shelters downtown were closing off uh, because of, uh, you know, social distancing, not being able to provide assistance. So you saw an increase in example of Tent City. So uh, the problem is, is that long-term mental health challenges added with a health challenge, which is now happening now, will result in more and more trauma, um, health determinants, challenges, and even death in Indigenous communities for long-term impacts, long-term death. And I say this uh, with, the, um, with probably the saddest possible thing I can express in, is that uh, like everything else in this country, everything else in North America, Indigenous peoples are impacted more for longer, and it results in our death when it comes to anything that happens in state governments because of this long history of violence and colonialism in our communities. And the fact is that when the vaccine becomes available, I just hope that people remember, state governments remember, that it's Indigenous peoples who have endured the most, therefore should get the most attention but I think sometimes that's get lost in the public eye. Well, of, of course it does. I mean, we're literally living in a country who is guilty of not just historic, but ongoing genocide and who has really bizarrely encountered to the, you know, literally in the opposite to all of the science and statistics and demographic data that's out there, used COVID as the excuse 
not to work on their anti-genocide plan, not to address all of the issues around kids in foster care, murder to missing Indigenous women, the over-incarceration rates, poverty and homelessness, when in fact genocide or um, COVID, just the presence of COVID, knowing that it was coming and knowing what the impacts were going to be, that should have been an expedited process. Okay, how can we just rush all of this assistance to First Nations knowing that they are only in this situation because of ongoing genocide, because of our laws and policies, and, and, and they can predict with a great degree of accuracy where it's going to hit the hardest. So if you look at Canada, and, and you know all of this, where are the rates of incarceration, murder to missing, kids in foster care, homelessness and poverty the greatest? Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And where are the COVID numbers the greatest right now? Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta for the most case. So we have advocated, like as soon as just the word COVID came out, we started advocating uh, very strenuously at different levels of government, but directed at the ministers saying, you need to have a plan right now, a preemptive plan. You need to not only compensate for all of the lack of health care and all of the health issues and you know lack of food and water and housing, you need to be addressing that, but you also need to take into account where we know it's going to hit the hardest. Wherever you've done the most amount of damage is where it's going to be hit the hardest. And they kept saying, oh, you know, it's, it's not as severe. Look at the numbers. The numbers are lower. You know, I mean, these were the responses that we were getting back. And we kept raising the point that you said, Nikon, that we know that historically and statistically, it's always delayed coming to First Nations. But when it does also, hit, it's exactly like you said, it's greater numbers, it lasts longer, and it does the most severe damage. And so they should have jumped to help in this situation. Yeah, the, well, I mean, the, the commitments that were made uh, so $600 million was the famous one uh, within the first two weeks of the pandemic. Um, that What that translates into is a defibrillator machine, a part-time nurse, and then a few health uh, masks and gloves and sanitizer. That's all it really translates into, which doesn't deal with the issue, I mean, per First Nation. And that doesn't even include urban communities, which then were, are expected to fall under provincial guidelines, which you know, and we know, of course, that colonialism doesn't think that way. Colonialism acts in uh, disproportionate impacts on Indigenous peoples. The over-policing of our communities is the evidence of that. If you want to know, like, what's a symptom, what's proof that uh, colonialism works on Indigenous peoples in urban areas? Well, over-policing, that's a perfect example. So the fact is that uh, police only deal with Indigenous communities as problems, exactly how Indian agents treated us in the past and, uh, you know, surveilled us and so on. So uh, the problem has been, and I think probably this is something to give it perspective uh, on what you just said there, um, the emergency situations that have been created over a century and a half of conquest and colonization of the country uh, has been devastating for in First Nations communities, been very profitable for Canada. And when an emergency is found, uh, in the past, particularly a flood, for example, or a snowstorm in Quebec, or uh, in you know in Manitoba, we get flooding all the time, or we get you know forest out, forest fires out in British Columbia, whatever it might be. There's always money, and uh, the question is: Was the country ever capable of dealing with the national emergency? And if you add up all the things you just spoke about in terms of Indigenous peoples and the impacts of, uh, of colonization has been on Indigenous peoples, more people in jails, uh, more murder missing Indigenous women and girls, uh, more children in the child welfare system, just add it all up, you know, add up all the deaths, for example, and you would see that it is an emergency situation by any measurement whatsoever. Would a country be able to deal with a national emergency? They found hundreds of billions of dollars in a week to deal with the pandemic. And yet indigenous peoples have been experiencing pandemics, epidemics, uh, ongoing genocide for a century and a half, never dealt with drops of money, if anything, drops of attention, uh, barely any policy that has changed all the way back to the 19th century. The Indian Act is virtually the same. Uh, with a few little things changed, tinkered with here and there. 
So what does that tell you? That there has been no will by any Canadian government, I don't care what political stripe, uh, conservative, liberal, which are the only two governing parties ever. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Indigenous peoples are not uh, deemed as the kind of emergency. And when there is an emergency, it's frankly drops in a bucket of what's needed because of the long going, uh, as you described, genocide, violence, uh, systemic oppression that goes within our communities. So, I mean, the fact is uh, my optimism is uh, very tempered, but you know, I, I do like to, in my Anishinaabe side of me, uh, does like to believe in the goodness of people. And every once in a while I'm proven wrong and, uh, and I, I like to just hope sometimes. It, it's, it keeps me from an ongoing series of despair. <laughs> And it's important, like we, all of us that are in this, of course we have hope. We wouldn't be here were it not for all of, you know, the hope and resilience and strength and determination and sacrifices of our ancestors. And we carry that forward and we'll keep carrying it forward. And part of that hope are all of the actions that we take to uh, protect ourselves, defend ourselves. And in order to do that, we have to know what the lay of the land is. And part of the problem has always been governments have never been honest about what's really happening, who's making choices about what, because here's the thing, genocide is a choice. They're like Canada's not guilty of accidental, oops, genocide, we didn't mean for all of you people to die. It is people sitting around the cabinet table and people in higher levels of government making conscious choices to say we're not funding First Nation water this year, we're not funding suicide prevention, we're going to continue to discriminate against First Nations children in care knowing that we'll have higher apprehension rates, we are not going to take homeless people off the streets, we're we're not going to protect murder to missing Indigenous women and girls, and we're going to continue, and they can predict with a high degree of statistical certainty what is going to be the outcome of their decision. So racism is a choice, it's not an oops, and I think it's even more so with this COVID pandemic. And what concerns me is that people need to understand that, you know, they keep reporting on here's who had COVID and here's who's recovered. And I'm putting recovered in air quotes because we know from all of the medical evidence that recovered might mean you don't have the COVID virus anymore, but you could now have lifelong conditions with a deteriorated lung capacity, um, implications on your organs, fatigue. There's like tons of evidence now coming from a multitude of countries saying that in some countries, like in Italy, about 50% six months after COVID aren't so-called recovered. They don't have COVID, but they now have serious symptoms that have lasted. And if you think about the already existing health conditions in First Nations, that makes this like doubly, triply, quadruply important that we prevent COVID as much as possible. And one of the things I wanted you to address on the, you know, the hopeful, more positive side of things is some of the ways in which First Nations have taken matters into their own hands, have exercised their own sovereignty and jurisdiction and self-determination to try to protect their communities. Yeah, and uh, just to add to what you said just a minute ago in terms of the impacts, um, there was a great study that was done uh, here, I think it was here just in Manitoba, but it could also be placed nationally. Um, it, it said that out of, uh, out of all people, blue collar people, frontline people who are losing their jobs, Indigenous peoples are one of the highest segments to the tune of 60% uh, of Indigenous peoples lost their jobs uh, who, because most of them are blue collar workers, they're frontline workers, they're working in restaurants, they're working in healthcare, or they're working in, you know, um, short term labor situations. And so uh, the impact of being off work for a few weeks, due to the situation of just the economy shutting down, has resulted in long term impacts for those families. Because when you are hand to mouth, meaning you have your paycheck to paycheck, uh, when you cut out three paychecks in a row, you're now on the streets. So we had a situation in downtown Winnipeg here of a father and a boy, a 12 year old boy who were living in the shelter. And that's never been seen before. We had a situation among a bear clan of somebody giving birth in 10 city. Uh, so these are situations that are real and they're in situations that indigenous peoples are the front line. So um, 
I've been giving a few talks here and there on the situation of Indigenous peoples and what have we done in response. And what I've said is, is that pandemics are not new to us. Epidemics are not new to us. In fact, our creation stories talk about epidemics and how we dealt with them. We had quarantine measures in our traditional stories. We knew how to deal with sickness. You know, uh, alcoholism is a sickness. Uh, smallpox was a si sickness. Uh, and even today, you know, uh, violence is a sickness in our community. We know sickness very well, and we know how to deal with it too. Uh, we have our, whether it be restorative justice or whether it be the traditional medicines that we have, or whether it be the very practices that we have within our communities of how to deal with sickness, uh, we have all of that. And some of the most amazing things happened during this pandemic uh, within uh, communities that I know of or that I'm connected with here in Manitoba, um, people were going out on medicine collect collecting missions. Um, they were going out as uh, grandmothers often would be leading the walks. They would collect medicines, antibacterial agents for the air, sage, sweetgrass, uh, bear root, um, things that we collect and we, uh, we, we use to clean houses, to get rid of the bacteria in the air. And then what they were doing is they were distributing them throughout the community, just like how people collect moose or they hunt moose and then distribute that throughout the community. Uh, people also were doing uh, social media campaigns, so uh, hashtag, there was actually a pretty cool set of videos of people doing um, uh, socially distanced uh, dance-offs at the First Nations blockades here in Manitoba, saying, hey, I challenge those at Cross Lake, hey, I challenge those at Fisher River to do a dance-off the way we're doing it, and they were doing, you know, line dancing or, uh, you know, a, and then there was also some really great stuff that was being done in urban communities here in the city. So one of the things that were, was being done uh, by, um, you know, organizations, people were doing clothing drives, people were doing support, support uh, um, uh, healthcare. Uh, one of the things that happened was, is some of the grants that people were able to access uh, through community organizations resulted in people being able to provide masks and sanitizer for those downtown. So during the Mama Bear Clan, for example, we were giving out, we still are giving out tens of thousands of masks and sanitizer to people in Tent City. And we're able to do that because of the tremendous generosity of Winnipeggers, but also the fact is that we have uh, people donating, um, people, you know, people like myself, others who are going out and collecting in our garages and bringing stuff to the Mama Bear Clan upon waiting the two weeks necessary to make sure that it's clean, that it's sanitized properly. So the, the remarkable thing about uh, Indigenous communities is while we are the most hit, we are perhaps the most equipped to be able to deal with sickness because we've been doing it for tens of thousands of years. So we know the teaching is, the basic very simple teaching is, during a pandemic, we are the society, mainstream world is encouraging us all to turn away from one another, forget about one another, to go to your house and just don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. Uh, that's individualism gone amok. Our communities are about turning together, turning socially distanced, of course, taking care of each other in terms of health, but we have to turn, we have to come together at this time. We have to commit more to one another. Our gifts have to be given more than ever to one another, not less than ever. So I think if we realize that the solution to this pandemic will be in how we commit to one another, and you see that with the mask campaign, wear a mask to help someone else. That's, that's the basics of our teachings, is of course you would wear a mask because you love your relative across the street. You would want to be wearing your mask more to commit to that person. That's your gift. Just like when we offer tobacco, we do that to build a relationship. We don't do it because we're you know, paying somebody off. We're doing it because we're building a relationship. And so uh, this pandemic, I think Indigenous peoples may be the ones, as I've said, you know, many things, tech from technology to the environment, uh, Indigenous peoples be the ones leading the way, we'd be much better off. Exactly. And I think that just goes in line with how First Nations actually responded to the pandemic. There was no question that um, for those who were next to urban areas or other areas of vulnerability, they closed their borders and they enforced it. Whether or not they had their own policing force or security force or whatever, the people manned those lines to make sure that there would be no spread of COVID from, you know, local 
communities, for example, and they started passing their own um, laws on the reserve and saying, here's how we're going to handle this pandemic, or they started making their own proclamations. They started forming alternative uh, governance structures to have you know, emergency committees, started coordinating and collaborating with other First Nations. And uh, I'm also talking about Native Americans too here. So Native American tribal governments um, coming together. So you would see some of them come together in a whole bunch of numbers so that they could order PPE in mass quantities and be able to share it. And those who had extra were actually helping other First Nations. So you saw First Nations exercising their sovereignty and jurisdiction and uh, responsibilities quite outside of asking permission of, you know, uh, federal or state governments, federal or provincial governments here in Canada. And, and I think that's one of the things that we need to take going forward that, you know, even without the money, even without the infrastructure, even with all the difficulties, that our best path forward is always when we're taking care of ourselves. And like what you said, community. I mean, community is what changes it all to think that we would all just go hide in our homes. What about the elders? What about people who are ill? What about people with disabilities? What about people who need to go back and forth to appointments? What about kids that are stuck in a foster care situation during a pandemic? And to see all of these people, like all of our brothers and sisters all over the country saying, well, you know, I'm home now, so I'm going to be the one to deliver meals to all of these elders, or even just checking on them. You know, like none of that stuff gets any, you know, media fame or attention, but it's the it's who we are as a community for all the ways in which we've been colonized and traumatized and, and all of the negative impacts of that. I think one of the hopeful things is actually seeing that, you know, within the communities and then online, you see like thousands of Canadians tuning into Indigenous teach-ins about how to address COVID. So it's not just within us that we're helping to educate and empower and take action on COVID, but it's also other Canadians who are saying, well, yeah, you know, I have to look outside of my own house and look at my community, even if they don't even know their neighbors, how can they do that? And I think it's also empowered Canadians to think about government using quotes again, differently that in, in fact, the people are the government first and foremost, who they elect are, you know, just spokespeople. But I think, you know, going forward, we really need to focus on the ways in which we have the power and we have the teachings, we have the knowledge on how to take care of one another, because we know um, governments are only, are only going to do what they're forced to do. And I think it's going to be even more important in the months to come, even when they say COVID numbers have gone back down, um, what are the long-term impacts, like you said, economically, but also health-wise, socially, culturally? Because if we look at the if we look at the First Nation charts right now, and you've seen it, it's like a straight diet, almost a straight diagonal line up with no signs of stopping. And we know what that's going to mean. So it's even more important that we come together now. And Mama Bear Clan is one of those ones that is actually helping people on the ground. And you don't need government permission to do that. Uh, certainly could use government support though. And yes. we, we were able to get a, uh, due to some of the COVID funding, um, it's important to identify, you know, they, we were able to apply for and get a, get a vehicle for the first time in our uh, organization's history. Uh, so, so there was money that did reach uh, people that are impacting everyday lives. I, I was gonna tell a story here. Uh, my, I have a non-Indigenous friend. And I, you know, everyone's got to have one. I'm just joking. But <laughs> I was, I was joking. Anyway, so, uh, but like, I, okay, I'm a very close uh, non-Indigenous friend of mine. Um, I grew up rural Manitoba. So, you know, I grew up in Selkirk, Manitoba. Frankly, it's a very conservative town. Uh, very, it used to vote for the Canadian Alliance. Anyways, so many of the people I know growing up are quite right-wing. And these are people who, uh, you know, part of my family, for example, part of my uh, people who I call uncle and auntie, even though they are hardcore Harper supporters, uh, you know, uh, formerly uh, Stockwell Day Canadian Alliance. Anyways, um, in, in that group, uh, one of uh, my friends growing up, I uh, went to high school with them, uh, we were t talking about some, uh, some stuff, some other stuff unrelated to uh, Indigenous sovereignty. 
it's not a particular comment that I talked with my uh, friend. <laughs> but you know what he says to me? He goes, he goes, oh, damn it. These First Nations have blocked the highway and I can't go to my cottage. And I said, and I said, okay, well, like this was in the opening days of the pandemic. And where the situation was, there was cases in Winnipeg, but nowhere else. And uh, and I said, he was like, oh, these First Nations are screwing everything up. And I was planning my holiday with my family. Now we got to stay home. And and they were, you know, F this and F that. And, and I said, well, like, why do you think that they're blocking the highway? And he says, well, they're just protecting themselves. And, and I said, well, but they're not just protecting themselves. Like, who else are they protecting on the other side of that blockade? He says, well, this community, this town... This city in northern Manitoba, Thompson, Manitoba, and then I said, and what about this town over here? I said, so that one blockade by a bunch of volunteers, mostly grannies, who are standing outside uh, on a highway with some emergency vests for free, are protecting probably in the neighborhood of 50,000 people. Indigenous grandmothers by enforcing our sovereignty of our communities, we're saving the lives of 50,000 Manitobans, most of them non-Indigenous. And that means that, um, when I said that to my friend, I, get, I, said, I said, do you think Thompson's thankful? I said, would you think that Selkirk would be thankful if people protected Selkirk as a bunch of volunteers? I said, do you think a bunch of people from Selkirk would go out and do that? He's like, probably not, unless you paid them. And I said, this is exactly what indigenous people are all about. <laughs> they're, they're putting their lives on the line, not just to protect themselves, but also what we have always done through trees, through taking care of the newcomers when they came here, uh, putting our lives at risk, giving up our own food and medicines, our own communities, our, our own territories, uncertain of what was going to happen next, but yet committing to those because we love community we believe in community we believe in the goodness of others and that's why i said before you know as it, i think it's the most initial thing i can do is to believe in hope and uh that's you know my friend now is become a staunch indigenous sovereigntist so in manitoba he texts me last week and he says where's the blockade are the blockades going to go up again and uh, he's a He's a right-wing, hardcore, hardware Harper supporter, and he's now calling forward saying, hey, where's that First Nations community? Do they want to go out and, you know, protect other people, particularly come out and protect our community? So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a real interesting time. Well, people don't realize. I mean, just that story alone, I think, is really significant. I hope, you know, a million people hear it, that in fact, unbeknownst to non-Native communities, when Native people stand up and try to protect and defend from the transmission of the COVID virus, that's actually protecting everybody else. And we're always doing it under the concept of being scorned at or, you know, uh, looked down at or, you know, considered as, as radicals and whatever else the government wants to call. Same thing for when we march for, we march for pipelines. Same thing when we talk about committing to the earth and saying, maybe we shouldn't build that mine. Maybe we should think about how we're polluting the, the air and the earth and the water. We're doing that not just for ourselves, we're doing it for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm glad you raised that second part because there are some hot spots right now in Canada and I'm calling them hot spots because there are significant risks to Indigenous people. So, you know, in Mi'kma'ki, in my home territory, um, the extended racist violence and intimidation and property destruction and criminality, essentially terrorism happening against Mi'kmaq people, literally, while fisheries officers and RCMP stand by and watch. You have here in Ontario, all of the Haudenosaunee at 1492 Landback Lane who have been peacefully reoccupying their territory, which is clearly theirs. There's no, you know, yeah, there's, there's yeah, no there's, gray area there. Yeah, there's no gray area. I mean, they the Haldeman track was given to Six Nations. It's theirs. It's been wrongfully taken away. And they've, you know, had to suffer through being called terrorists and uh, tons of arrests. I think there are well over 40 arrests now, injunctions, fines against them, OPP violence. 
in Chequemic territory. You have land defenders who are, you know, been to court and have to go to court again for having peacefully defended the lands from Trans Mountain Pipeline. In Wet'suwet'en territory, things are ramping up again. Another potential RCMP invasion is imminent where they're trying to defend peacefully their territories from Coastal Gasoline Pipeline. And this is all happening under the context of COVID. And, uh, you know, you kind of get the sense that all these law enforcement agencies, federal and provincial governments are taking advantage of the fact that the attention is all on COVID right now and that they can take these actions and inactions that threaten everybody's lives. Because like you said, when we defend the waters against pipelines, which always leak and always do damage, there's no question about that. We're doing that for everyone, but it seems to kind of go a little bit under the radar. But I, I feel like on a go forward basis, these hotspots are, are going to be, you know, uh, a situation of conflict and risk for Indigenous peoples, um, unless Canadians can actually continue to get on board and push their governments. And also be aware that Indigenous peoples are probably the best ally in taking care of their children. Yeah. And... And, and, you know, of course, when, when I make that blanket statement, I don't mean, you know, there are Indigenous peoples who are very pro-capitalist and pro-pipeline. And uh, in fact, one came up on my Facebook this morning and I was like, just blown away by the, by, by the uh, gymnastics you have to do in your head to go to the lodge and to also be pro-resource uh, development or resource extraction and frankly, uh, uh, just, just the destruction of Mother Earth mm-hmm. and the whole idea that you can still go to the lodge and lay your tobacco down. I don't know how you can do the gymnastics in your head. I'd sure like to see how, to, how somebody figures that out uh, in a traditional way in, a, in trying to figure out how do you live ethically. But the, the going, you know, you're talking about going forward here. Mm-hmm. Um, going forward, I think we're, it's an optimistic time for probably the first time at the pandemic. Uh, what I was saying to people yesterday was now that there is a vaccine potentially in sight, it means that this darkness, this arguably a time that nobody prepared for, is one of the most stressful and uh, difficult times in, I think, human history. Uh, we can see the end of it, the potential end to it. And the goal now is to think of what is going to happen next. What's, what kind of world do we need? And there's a prophecy that we have about this, which is that when the darkness ends, uh, what kind of light do we want to produce? And what does it look like to have that opportunity? Or what we, what we call is the Oshki Ishkade, which is the new fire. And what does that new fire look like? And as we know, fire brings light and warmth, but it can also scorch and hurt. What does that fire look like going after this incredible devastation of this sickness, which is not ending. We're looking at another year of this, potentially masks for probably years following this because the vaccines are not 100% protective. Um, The mental health impacts on our communities, on everyone, uh, will take decades and decades and decades to resolve itself. But we do have an opportunity here to create our own Oshki Ishkade, our own new fire. And what does that look like? Well, Nigon, so for, for everybody who's listening, and there's a lot of, you know, Canadians listening, there's a lot of Indigenous peoples listening. I'm sure CSIS, the RCMP, you know, the usual bunch are listening. I mean, go, sticking with the theme of going forward, what is it that Canadians can do to help ensure that, you know, it, all of the things that Indigenous peoples are doing to protect all Canadians, whether it's from the pandemic, whether it's coming together to take care of one another, or whether it's protecting the lands and waters from all of this destruction, what what can Canadians do right now to, to help support that? Well, as usual, I think everything's about education. So mm-hmm. it's becoming cognizant and understanding uh, what's happening. And this podcast gives you a good sort of jumping off point to understanding a whole bunch of different things. What is Indigenous sovereignty? How is it invested in everybody's health and everyone's well-being? Uh, Second is, how do Indigenous peoples participate in elections 
uh, and bring in a president, frankly, uh, when the previous president is catering to division, it's indigenous peoples who bring, who pick the candidate that's bringing us together. Just like what, when we uh, create blockades on the highway, we're trying to bring people together. We're not dividing. I think we're construed as dividing, but we're not dividing. We're bringing things together. And then thirdly is how indigenous peoples are perhaps the best equipped to deal with conflictual divisive sicknesses uh, and that Indigenous peoples can perhaps help us the most in a situation like this by leading us in ways that we can come together, not apart. So well, learning that, um, learning that is an important part. And then figuring out what's your role in that. Like in the Mama Bear Clan, for example, half our volunteers are non-Indigenous. Um, the, one of our guys that donates his truck every week to uh, before we got a vehicle, um, he used to you know br- drive us around and we would go and deliver food and medicines and and uh, and water, for example, to tent cities and to other our relatives on the streets. Uh, we have many non-indigenous peoples who are in major decision-making uh, abilities involving indigenous peoples to the tunes of billions of dollars. Uh, we also have many non-indigenous peoples who are in our families and that can stand up and can protect us in times in which people say, oh, that's an Indigenous problem. Well, non-Indigenous peoples are part of our families too. And I think that frankly, they need to stand up with us and that we're not the only the ones putting our bodies on the line when it comes to projects that are supposed to be supporting everybody and that non-Indigenous peoples should be standing with us as well. And frankly, people will listen, non-Indigenous peoples will tend to listen to non-Indigenous peoples more. And uh, what I had a phone call yesterday from a teacher, who non-Indigenous teacher in the city, who's saying, this ra- thing racist is happening and this thing is terrible is happening. I'm going to resign off this board because somebody said something racist in a meeting. And I said, yeah, you can, you can die on that hill if that's what's important to you. But we, you are the person in that room that I will never be in. And I would like you to be in that room to confront and engage that. And I know it's hard, but... Uh, welcome to my life. <laughs> welcome to welcome to how you know. Welcome to me before nine a.m. on Twitter, getting racist rants thrown at me. Uh, I said to him, uh, "Don't don't leave that committee because that committee needs you, or I need you to be on that committee. The work that you'll do on that committee, you will not always win every battle, but the, when you are there consistently, uh, the the battle is long and the battle is just." And I really believe that justness will win the day. I have to. Um, That's what our teachings talk about as Anishinaabe, is that there is always a good purpose in everything. Well, I think that's a perfect, perfect way to move forward. And for people to understand, you know, you don't all have to be on the front lines as land defenders. You don't all have to be lawyers arguing things in court. That Canadians can use whatever skills, backgrounds, influence, wealth, like whatever it is they have to offer in this context. And I, and I think you raised a lot of them that haven't even been talked about before. You also mentioned the word Twitter. And funny thing, I was scrolling through my Twitter this morning before this podcast and saw this announcement from Cook McDermott congratulating none other than Negan Sinclair, for a book of essays that's going to be inspired by the column you write for Winnipeg Free Press that's talking about the history and culture of Winnipeg. And it's called Winnipeg, but it's not spelled the same way. So first of all, congratulations. And can you tell us a little bit about it, even though it's in the works? Yeah, um, well, it's done. Uh, well, it's mostly done, anyways. And so they have the draft now. Um, it's uh, McClellan and Stewart. Uh, who's publishing it, which is an imprint of Penguin, and uh, was one of their, I think they have six imprints. Um, and so uh, McClellan and Stewart will be publishing it next year sometime. Uh, it, it, it comes from the name Winnipeg, which doesn't refer to the city, it's referring to the watershed of Lake Winnipeg, and the, which goes all the way to Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, North South Dakota, into the Great Lakes. And what it's referring to is it's, it's saying that there is a, a, a network of relationships in this place, not just people, uh, but human, but non-humans, uh, animals, water, and, and the most important of all of those beings is what we refer to as the Atagib, which is the algae. And that the algae is what you can see in Lake Winnipeg, which is the problem with Lake Winnipeg, the overabundance, because we've dammed up the north waterways, we've uh, 
you know, filled it full of oils from Alberta, oil fracking from Alberta. We put pig fertilizer in the groundwater. And so the problem is, is that we have too much algae, which is choking the life out of Winnipeg. And that's the problem here is we've flooded it with violence. We've flooded it with uh, destruction and relationships, you know, negative relationships. Uh, we've also totally filled it with colonialism and colonization and devastation wrought from forgetting each other's relationship, which is the teaching of what Winnipeg is all about. And so that's what that's that, that's what that book is all about. It's about my columns. And uh, yeah, it's part of a two book deal that I have. Uh, so I have a second book. Who knows what the heck that book's going to be about. I told them it was going to be, and I hope they're not listening, but I told them it was going to be about uh, that new fire story that I just talked about just a minute ago at Oshki Ishkade. Um, what does the new fire look like? And so, uh, so the name of that, the name of that book is called Ishkade fire. Well, that's exciting. Almost a little bit unfair that you're doing two books at once and I can only do one book at a time. And it's oh, the, the second book is not even, I haven't written one word. I've written it in my head. <laughs> well, that, that's the hardest part to write it in your head. Well, congratulations. And of course, I'm going to be first in line to buy these books, especially this one that's coming out next year. Um, I think everybody is going to learn so much about it. I didn't even know any of this history uh, about the way you're describing Winnipeg and all of that. And so I think people are going to learn a lot for that and how interdependent we all are and, and how we need to think beyond non-humans. I mean, just the fact that you're focusing on algae, who would think to focus on algae or what it means or the impact that it has. And so thank you very much. And um, I also want to thank you for personally, thank you for your contribution to my latest book, Warrior Life, because you wrote the foreword and it made me cry. It's a beautiful foreword. It's, Honestly, it's so it's so grounded in, you know, our teachings and our traditions, but it's written so beautifully. And I knew that you would be the perfect person to write it because not only did you write it, you know, for this book, uh, but my last book, Indigenous Nationhood, you also wrote the foreword and you also made me cry. And it was also a beautiful story grounded in, you know, tradition and culture and, and this beautiful ideology. And I, you know, I think people can learn a lot from that, a lot from those teachings. And I really appreciate how you actually share your teachings. You don't write a foreword in the traditional way, you know, where, you know, people talk about, um, uh, formal things, you actually bring culture and teachings into it. And and I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me, Nigon. This last one took me a little bit longer to write for the most part because I'm a little busier than I was back in 2000 and what was that, 2007 or something? Or, or sorry, 17, I think, or whatever it was a while ago. Yeah. And uh, this one, um, this one took me a little bit longer, but but yeah, no, it's, it's an honor. It's uh, just an honor just to be included in your work. And uh, um, I, I promote regularly uh, your podcast and your, um, your blogs because, um, frankly, I think it's some of the best stuff of people, in order for people to understand the complexity of issues, you don't shy away from the good, the bad, the great, the ugly. And I also think it's fair because you also... Uh, address some of the challenges our own people are of coming to an agreement on issues, and and I, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's often the case with many commentators. I think one of our responsibilities as journalists and writers and bloggers are is uh, to to talk about how not all Native people agree, not mm -hmm. all Indigenous peoples think in the same way, not all tribal nations have the same way that they approach things, and so these are really critical ways to address it. And and one thing I really like about your latest book in Warrior Life is uh, is that you talk a lot about how approaching these issues come from different perspectives, but there's usually one solution, and it's that what what is the impact on our children? What is the what is the way in which we can protect and ensure the safety of our children in the future that are yet to come? And uh, that there's nothing more Anishinaabe than that. So when I read that, I knew I was like, okay. Hopefully she doesn't mind if I uh, if I tie in some Anishinaabe into her very McMoggy story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got some uh, Confederacy happening here. Well, thank you, Negan. Again, like you, you really honor me with your words, and of course, you know everything that you write is the same way. You're 
you, the articles that you write for the Winnipeg Free Press, you can't even predict them. So some of them are hardcore, you know, about Manitoba politics or federal politics or about a legal issue. But it can also be something as heartfelt as someone that you know and a struggle that they're going through or something that you've struggled with or some really happy story. And I like how you are actually reflecting the lived reality where you don't write in a silo so that we're only just looking at this dimension that you, you actually make it about people and, and the impact on people. And I think that's amazing. I've never seen that in any newspaper, you know, anywhere. And so, you know, thank you for the work that you do. It's hard to not be, uh, like I frequently write about Indigenous issues, but I just recently wrote about uh, uh, long-term care facilities here in Winnipeg, which uh, all everyone I wrote about was non-Indigenous in that piece. And uh, just because I think taking care of our elders is a universal, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I just wrote this week was on... Uh, uh, how I how great I think the new legislation on the Broadcast Act is, and how I think that's amazing that the federal liberals are going to do this and require uh, the you know networks and radio networks and stations and TV stations to uh, fund Indigenous programming. So I think that's amazing the liberals are doing that. Like that's awesome. And so you know it's it's important to talk about all of these stories at the same time, of course. And then I frequently speak about how. Uh, uh, provincial governments, particularly this provincial government here in Manitoba, federal liberals, municipalities, are so racist. Uh, so, you know, I try to cover it all. Yeah, well, I think we could do 10 shows on just the racism element. But, you know, I'm, I'm do glad you cover it all. And you give credit where credit is due, because I, too, am... Um, happy to hear about the Indigenous programming for broadcasters and see how that could literally change the lay of the land. Imagine if there was just like a whole bunch of Indigenous peoples in every kind of broadcasting forum. I mean, we're getting there, but I mean, that would be significant. See with the show Trickster, I mean, massive viewership, profitable, um, creates more awareness and, and commitment from Indigenous people. I mean, just it's an all win all around. Yeah, exactly. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you to all the podcast listeners for continuing to listen to and support this podcast and taking action. Because remember, this podcast is about education, not for information or entertainment purposes, but for taking action to learn more, to do more. And similarly, if you're watching this on YouTube, it's the same thing. This is about taking action that ultimately is for the entire planet. It's for all of us. It's for uh, humans and animals and, 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 our, and our basic, our, our future. And so um, I will make sure to post links to some of Negon's work. It's uh, amazing. Uh, I'll uh, post links to his social media contacts. I'll post links to my new book as well. And please make sure you share these podcasts, use them in your classrooms, have discussions about them, watch them on YouTube, use them as learning resources, but don't just stop there. Like Negon said, use it as a jumping off point and go and learn about the specifics like what is happening in COVID, what's happening in the United States for uh, Native Americans, what's happening in all of it with regards to Canada's genocide policy, its economic policy, all of it. And thank you so much for tuning in to the Warrior Life podcast. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.